Hello, my name is Christopher Monroe, and welcome to the Soundtrack to a Life. And welcome back once again to the Soundtrack to a Life. I am Chris again. With me is Sarah again. You remember her from two weeks ago, unless you only listened to this based on whether you like the album already, in which case you may have missed it. <laughs> Sarah and I are here today talking about Metric's 2007 album, Grow Up and Blow Away. Sarah, what does this mean to you? What's your relationship with this piece of music? First of all, the album is called Grow Up and Blow Away, and then the first lines of the album are Grow Up and Blow Away. So when I hear Grow Up and Blow Away, I want to just like launch into the album. Like I just hear it start. So when I first got my first, and let's be real, only car, when I was 17 years old, I drove around these two girls all the time and they would pay me in music. They would like burn CDs for me all the time. Sometimes gas money as well, but I also took burnt CDs. And so Grow Up and Blow Away was uh, one that I got. It was a fresh, hot, new Metric album. This is just before everybody else found out about Metric with their next album, Synthetica. That's when everybody who still likes Metric started to care about Metric. This is my last big hurrah with them. Oh, you got off the train after this? Yeah, I didn't like Synthetica or anything after it. But the first three albums were gold, especially this one. This one uh, just came into my life right when I needed it, right when I first got a car. Nice. Yeah. And it is good driving music, I think. Oh, yeah, probably. Let me not like speeding driving music, like safe driving music or emotional driving music. But not like angry emotional driving music. That's no. more of a Billy talent. Moody emotional driving music. Yeah. Well, let me open by saying that there is zero excuse for me not to have listened to Metric by this point in my life. It ticks a ton of boxes for what I want from a band out of this period. It is cerebral. It is Canadian. It is hipster nonsense from 2005. And I spent most of the George W. Bush presidency listening to music that sounded more or less like this. In my defense, there was so much music being made during this yeah. period that sounded like this. It was really... A golden age for hipster nonsense. It is distinctly 2007. This album especially is distinctly from 2007. It's less political, I think. I would say like uh, their second album was significantly more political than this. But I found that there wasn't as much hipster nonsense that was girl-fronted, and I'm sexist. Fair. This came out and they would be competing with... As far as Canadian bands go, Stars or Arcade Fire or New Pornographers or Hot Hot Heat. Oh man, I loved Hot Hot Heat. Hot Hot Heat. And I guess like great. three of those four bands yeah. had a female vocalist. Did they? Well, yeah. Arcade Fire's predominantly male though. Yeah. And Stars, nah, Stars they actually alternate between the two. Yeah, I don't pretty fairly. I don't like Stars that much either. No? No. Oh my god. They've made some good quality 2005-style hipster nonsense. They put a record last year, and I'm still on board with stars, turns out. Huh. 
I also, this came out just before I feel like the internet made everything very widely accessible. Like, things were, were accessible, but you had to know about it. And this wasn't quite on the radio. Somehow, people I knew would, like, pass it on to me. And that's how I discovered Metric. Like, you had to know people. Yeah, it's a phone chain rather than part of the mass culture. And Metric was always a band whose name I knew. As you should have. Emily Haynes is pretty cool. But, like I said, like it was a golden age for indie kids. Yeah. There was a ton of music coming out that was basically like this. And yeah. also it was the tail end of the period where you still had to pay money for music in order to listen to it. Yeah. Well, like, I, I definitely downloaded it, and or, like, in the case of this album, it was just a burnt version of it was just given to me. But this is just before Scott Pilgrim, and you may remember they did a good portion of the soundtrack to Scott Pilgrim. Oh, was this them? Yeah. I didn't listen to that soundtrack. What? I didn't listen to the Scott Pilgrim soundtrack. Why not? Because you can curate your own music experience, so you don't need a bunch of people from Hollywood to make you a mixtape anymore. Yeah, but, like, did you just watch Scott Pilgrim? Oh, I listened to the music while it was playing, but I didn't, like, sit down with it and then go over it in any kind of detail. Okay, but just remember the parts where, like, Envy is playing, she's always singing metric songs. Neat. Yeah. I'm gonna rewatch Scott Pilgrim. Not just because of this, but also because of this. You should just rewatch Scott Pilgrim anyways, even if you don't like Metric that much. Yeah, just always. That movie uh, was great. It's awesome. It's my favorite movie that takes place in Canada. Like, there's lots of movies that are filmed in Canada, but they don't take place in Canada. Whereas Scott Pilgrim takes place in Toronto. What about Jesus Christ Vampire Hunter? That takes place in Toronto. Why? Because vampires are killing all of the lesbians in Toronto, putting the fringe and folk festivals at risk. And the only man who can stop them is the second coming of Christ. But he's not done training in Kung Fu yet, and he doesn't know if he's ready to fight vampires. I can't stress enough to you that this movie's real. This is a real movie. I don't believe you. That you can watch. I will find a copy at some point in my life. Can I tell you a very off-topic story? That's mostly what this show is. Yes. <laughs> I was cleaning the halfway house back when I lived with Corey Hicks. Uh, once upon a time when I first moved in and I found a burnt DVD with just the word zombie strippers on it and I dropped everything. I stopped cleaning immediately. No, this is the rest I of your day. On. And zombie strippers is exactly what you expect it to be <sighs> and exactly as delightful. I bel uh, If I had to guess as to who left that behind in that home, I would put that on Brad Duffy. I'll buy it, mm -hmm. frankly. He, I got a lot of great really B-movie recommendations from that dude. Uh, he knew what was what. Yes. Yes, he did. Anyways, back to Metric. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's a more jazzy record. Oh, I've never thought of it as jazzy. Than I expected. Like, it's okay. got almost that kind of an influence. There's almost a... Like, it is post-punk dance pop from this period, and it definitely fits in well with that. But this is a lot more chilled out than a lot of the bands that were working in this field at this time. Like, there's almost a shoegaze element to it. Although that might just be that the singer's voice reminds me vaguely of uh, one of the two women who front Lush. It's funny what a similar-sounding voice can do. Even yeah. if you're making different music. Quite. I, like, I never would have gone that way. I think that this is just the most 2007 thing that's ever happened. I think your first description of all of the bands that it's similar to in the Canadiana of the late 2000s is She Falls Neatly in There, or Metric Does. Yeah, they're very much part of that yeah. world. 
And that was a great time for Canadian music. We suddenly realized that we were very good at making a certain specific kind of art rock and then exporting it to the world. Did it export to the world? Did other people eat up Metric and Hot Hot Heat and stuff like that? Um, I know they ate up Arcade Fire. Yeah. I know Stars did some business. I think New Pornographers did. I mean, New Pornographers made it onto Rock Band. So, like, killing it. <laughs> <laughs> I think that probably counts as killing it. Yeah. But, like, I... In I terms have... of 2007 specific touchstones <laughs> that a band might aspire to. I don't... I have no concept of, like, whether or not Canadian bands made it big anywhere else. Yeah, cause because we're going to hear them either way. Yeah, well, we have, like, Canadian content laws that make it so that radios have to play to, to some extent. Yeah. We don't care yeah. if you don't want to listen to magic. <laughs> you will be listening to magic by federal law. <laughs> and then we have... I guess we're going to listen to magic then. Why I gotta be so rude? <laughs> we listen to different radio stations. I think I only heard that song at Stampede, and I was like, what the hell is this? Yeah, my workplace plays very top 40 pop radio. Oh, neat. A lot of the time, which has caused me to have a lot of opinions that by this age, I should not have ever had to develop. Yeah, that's fair. And like, some positive. Okay. Some negative. Sometimes I'll come to work and go, oh, pop radio is on. I guess at this stage in my life, I'm going to have to develop an opinion one way or the other on Cardi B. And then four minutes later, oh, I'm kind of into this. I like Cardi this. B. She's great. She's so weird. She's, she's living her best life. <laughs> she sure is. She, to hearken back to our last episode together, she is unapologetically herself. She sure is. Which I am into from an artist. You know what? I think that Metric is apologetically themselves. Oh. I think it's super Canadian, and they're like, this is us, we're kind of sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I'll buy that. Because, yeah, they do, they know what they're doing, but there is, like, a sense of smallness and well, personal in us. Especially in the first three albums, this one being the third, you definitely get that sort of intimate, we're finding ourselves, and to hear in an album that the artist that you're listening to is still finding themselves while you're still finding yourself is kind of like a beautiful experience because I was 17 when this album came out. Ooh, the music you like when you're 17 is the best fucking music that's ever been made. It is actually the worst. I cringe when I listen to music that I loved at 17 more often than not. Ooh. Uh, but this is an album that I'm not ashamed that I loved at 17. I'm like, oh, you like Metric? Like, I don't like anything past Girl and Blow Away. And people are like, what's that? And I'm like, oh, you started with Synthetica. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so people got on board after this mostly? Yeah, like right after this, uh, Synthetica came out and then Scott Pilgrim came out. And on Synthetica, you've got songs like Gimme Sympathy, and like that song was pretty okay, and that song's about loving the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. And then like after that, she just really sold out really hard. I'm surprised to hear that. A lot of the bands of this ilk, their really big year commercially was 2004, 2005, that's why I call it that. Yeah. And then a lot of them by 2009, 2010 were coming to the logical endpoint of their time on commercial radar. So to know that these guys didn't blow up until after that. This is what they sounded like then, but they moved with the trends. And so like, you know how you're complaining or maybe noting that in our last episode, Kate Bush didn't really move with the times. Like she started to become famous in the seventies and she just stayed there and it worked for her. Metric didn't do that at all. Metric 
evolved and we just like we found ourselves and we found ourselves in different places mm. is what it comes down to they sounded like they were trying to be contemporary yeah that's always uncomfortable yeah and like they did get way more radio play which like good for them that's the goal that's what you're trying to do but it's not what i was loving so that checks out yeah it's hard when your uh, favorite band switches styles yeah it's weird when your favorite band switches styles and then everybody else suddenly likes your favorite band and then you think you can talk to them about it, but you can't. And then suddenly what would have been a very minor disappointment in your year turns into an issue that you were willing to dig your heels in and have this fight. Okay, like, well, I mean... I mean, I bet money that the first time that you heard Synthetica, your attitude was, oh, I guess this is all right. I can live with this. But then after the third or fourth time somebody said, this is the best thing they've ever done... You were responding, no, fuck this record. Okay, so it's funny you should say that, because at first I was like, oh, yay, new metric. And then I listened to it, and I was like, okay, new metric. And then everybody else was like, metric is so great. Give me sympathy. And I was like, are you guys fucking serious right now? This is what we reward as a culture. Yeah. So you're right. It did go kind of like that, except I didn't want to fight anybody. I was just like the biggest hipster about it, where I was like, I liked metric before they got big. And, like, this is before we started using the term hipster, too, so it was like a hipster before hipsters, and I know what aesthetic I bring to the table, okay? Yeah. Uh, You're someone who's not afraid of conflict. Well, no, I definitely am I'm into conflict, and but I, for the people who listen to your podcast and have never seen me, yeah, I'm aggressively hipster. That would be fair to say. I will, speaking of, I am disappointed and angry that... Music snobs in 2007 did not start using the phrase grow up and blow away as like a dismissive way to tell people to fuck off. I mean, I did. Did you? uh, I did. That's all that I wanted. But like, it fell on deaf ears. Like, the two girls I hung out with who gave me the CD knew what I was talking about, but everybody else was like, what? I also went to high school because I was in high school when this happened to me. I went to high school in Airdrie, and it was like a very upper middle class high school where. Everything was very homogenous. You could count the number of people of color I graduated with on one hand, and most of them were related to each other. This is a good soundtrack to that life experience. Yeah, it it was a phenomenal soundtrack to that exact experience. It's, It's good, and it's smart, and it is lily white. Yeah, absolutely. It's also, I noted here... The soundtrack to a Baz Luhrmann buddy cop movie set in the 1930s that nobody's no, ever made. Not. You'd watch that movie. You wouldn't, but you'd listen to the soundtrack. See, and it would sound like this. <laughs> it's got like a neo lounge. I mean, like I really want to go and watch Scott Pilgrim again. So clearly, I would watch something that Metric did the soundtrack for. I don't really understand the reference you just made, but I feel like I want to. Just got, it's got a, it's got like a jazzy, loungy feel and it's buddy cop it's widescreen enough that it would sound good in and among more action beats like this is what's playing as the buddy cops walk through a smoky nightclub to meet a contact or some such like it sounds it sounds like a period piece but also very contemporary which is a great way to make your music sound timeless is to take something from several decades ago and then produce it with modern production values And then it sounds like it's neither and therefore somehow both. I feel like that's an attitude you have because you're listening to an album that is so obviously from a full decade ago. That's true, yeah. This is very tied to its time. Yeah, so like I think having heard it very much at the time and pretty frequently 
sense. But this doesn't sound dated. There is music from that period that sounds very dated. Well, that's because the Black Eyed Peas frequently used the date in their song. No, they didn't. They used the year previous. <laughs> it was not 2008 when that song came out. It yes, came, it was. It was 2009, baby. No. Yeah. They were literally 2000 and late <laughs> releasing that song. It came out in like February of the following year, but it was 2008 when they recorded it. <laughs> I can't even with Black Eyed Peas right now. Don't get me wrong, like, I sang Fergalicious at a karaoke bar within the last 30 days. I know I was there. But, <laughs> yeah, no, that song did not come out in 2008. Oh my god, yes. <laughs> Who else did that Transplants? That song that was in every Fructus commercial had the year in it. I think it was 2001. And I was like, holy shit, this song can almost vote. Yeah. Yeah. Time's arrow keeps moving forward, yo. Sure does. We are swept along in its trail. We sure are. But in all fairness, an alarming number of songs from that era are dated because people put the literal date in the song. That's a fact. And I, Emily Haynes was at least wise enough to not do that. Plus, it's not auto-tuned, so all the voices sound weird. Yeah, I think this was when the auto-tune came out. Yeah, this was about that period. Yeah, this is like right when T-Pain got real big. But... And all it's the emo bands a... were doing that as well. Yeah, but this isn't emo or whatever T-Pain did. So, like, it was, it would have been weird to do it. And again, like, these first three albums were, like, a little bit smaller. Yeah, these are the ones that they did on an indie budget before they got label money. And therefore label notes. Yes. Scott Pilgrim money. Right? Everybody wants that money. Stack those dollar bills. Hold them to your ear like they're a cell phone on Instagram. Do people still do that? Is that like a three... Money? Yeah, you hold a brick of money to your ear, you take a selfie of yourself, you put uh, it on Instagram. I'm it, sure people who encounter bricks of money do that. Yeah. It gets across to your audience that you have some money, I think is the point of it. I don't know. I've only got like 500 Instagram followers. Well, that is... It's not enough no. to have money. It's definitely not a lot enough that people are going to start paying you to go to parties. No. Oh, man, that would be so cool, though. Right? I want to get paid to go to parties. Yeah, but I think that they're... Apparently that's a thing in Asia, too. Yeah? Yeah, like, white people can just get paid to go to parties in Asia. Like, company Christmas parties. You should do that. Right? I can't, because I'm assuming that by people you mean young, hot women. Uh, maybe? (laughs) (laughs) I feel like ain't nobody ever going to pay me to go to a party. Well, like, to a certain extent... What I'm told is some companies just want to brag that they hire white people. So they'll hire white people to come to their Christmas parties and act like they work there. Which, like, if you would like me to get drunk and ruin the Christmas party... Which is what you'd do if you worked there. Exactly. I am here for that. Yeah. Yeah. Pick someone randomly and then have a screaming fight as though you'd broken up three months before and had been pretending that you were cool until just now. Oh my god. Give them a really complete Christmas party experience. I, I absolutely could. I would be willing to do that. And, like, honestly, for, for flights, like, I, they don't have to pay me. They can just, like, pay for my flights, and I'm there. So, companies Shame in Asia, <laughs> slide up into Sarah's mentions. <laughs> Please. <laughs> Please. Uh, she will happily... 
provide this service for your party. She will be the most drama-y person <laughs> that you have ever met. She's not a naturally drama-y person, but I know all of our mutual friends, and I feel like she's observed enough that she could do a passable <laughs> imitation. Yeah, absolutely. Enough alcohol can also, uh, it's like a superpower for my ability to crank up the drama. Which at a Christmas party, you kind of need. Yeah. Your job is to provide these people with stories of the fucking train wreck their office Christmas party turned into. And you are going to take that like it was your job. I mean, it would, be, it would just be really fantastic to have that experience. I'm inclined to agree. Yeah. One thing I did want to mention about this record, I've praised a number of bands on the show for their sincerity, and I like sincerity in a band. But I don't require sincerity from a band in the way that some aging punk kids might. And I think this record is a really good example of what a protective layer of irony keeping the music that you're making at arm's length from you can benefit your indie song. Yeah, definitely. Because there are moments where this music, rather than being heartfelt and moving, is clever and interesting. Yeah, that was actually it for me. I had listened to too much music that was heartfelt. And I'm not as cool as you. I'm not an aging punk kid. I am an aging suburban kid. The majority of punk kids were suburban. Okay, well, I'm <laughs> just suburban. So for me, I was listening to way too much Three Days Grace Ooh. at this time. Like, way too much. And it is sincere. It is raw. But it is not clever. It is the same three chords over and over again with the same general message that I hate you. Or I hate everything about you. Let's start a riot. There's not a lot of depth to that. So to me, Grow Up and Blow Away was a conversation that I was missing from my peers in that it was clever and it was... Yeah, it's witty. Yeah, it was witty, it was interesting, and it wasn't all angst all the time, which was the majority... Like, I was listening to a lot of Evanescence, you know, so like all angst all the time. And so this was a break. This was for me, thinking. And this is an album that 10 years later, I listened to it and I'm like, oh, I wasn't just angsty. I was also clever. Good for me. Yeah. You know? Yeah. This is the same principle behind why the Pet Shop Boys were on the radio with a cover of a Village People song shortly after Nevermind came out by Nirvana. A ton of bands broke through that door and then music fans went, it can't all sound like this though. Like, we were super into the level of sincerity that you were bringing to the table, but having everything be this achingly sincere is yeah. exhausting. Could we have one group who seems to be having a good time making the music that they're making, please? Yeah, well, I was also, like, drowning in hormones. I started listening to this album shortly after losing my virginity and, like, having my heart broken for the first time. So, like, I was drowning in my own emotions and my own hormones. But this album was, like, if you could get through all of the hormones, this was conversational. Yeah, know? I'll buy that. And it's really easy to connect to on that level. Cool. Like, it's not... I'm glad you connected to it. Yeah. It's not the kind of music that reaches into your heart, chest and pulls out your heart. It's the kind of music that you from across the room will snap your fingers and point at and go, I see what you did there. <laughs> <laughs> Which also describes, I want to say 40% of my friendships. 
So clearly I have room. For interesting witty people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What did you think of this, other than it being jazzy? Did you like it? Yeah, I super dug it. Yeah. Like, okay. I got a lot out of this. Would you say? I knew that I was going to, okay. frankly. The only reason that I didn't listen to this at the time was that I was still paying money for music at the time. Okay. And Jubilations doesn't pay very well. No. And I had a bunch of other bands like this that I was listening to already. Right. It was one of those ones that were on the back burner waiting for when I needed a new band that existed in this realm. Okay. And then gradually the UK post-punk dance scene kind of burnt itself out. And the Canadian indie spinoff started to wind down as well. And then eventually everything sounded like Pitbull and it had happened so gradually. Really? I feel like everything sounded like Pitbull very suddenly. No, I think there was more of a transition. Because, like, all of the bands that sounded like this got off one or two records on the way down. This isn't even down for them. This is before they, like, really took off for a lot of people. Yeah, this is the one that, before they broke wide, I should have, in hindsight, gone on board this train. Rather than expecting Block Party to not explode and then need seven or eight years off. It was so weird to me when uh, Synthetica was way bigger because you want to talk about inauthentic, that's when things started to like get inauthentic. But after Synthetica came out, and even like two or three albums after that, they would sell out, um, like not the Saddle Dome or anything like that, but they would sell out bigger venues like um, the BMO Center or Mac Hall at UFC there. So they would like usually fill up bigger venues and I would think about going and then I would realize that like they're not going to play any of the stuff that I like. Yeah, because you liked them before they were cool. I don't like to say it that way because and then uh, we have to go back to the conversation about how I was a hipster before hipsters were hipsters and it's just brutal. Aren't we all hipsters though in our own way? Have you ever talked to somebody who used to like Metallica before they got big? They're the worst. Oh my god. Yeah. That was everyone about three years older than me through most of my high school experience. That's unfortunate. I was a little bit young for early 90s rock music, but I was doing community theater with people in their early 20s. Yes. And it was bonkers the lengths that they would go to. Yeah, no, Metallica have to have top five craziest fan bases for their old material. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't yell at people who like new metric, I guess. I just judge them silently-ish. I mean, that's, I think, the way to be hipster about a Canadian band. Doing a Canadian way. Politely. Not aggressive, <laughs> not impolite, but quiet and judgmental. <laughs> Our our national anthem. Pretty much. We're a smug people. Very smug. (laughs) Next to a nation that doesn't understand passive aggression. (laughs) So we completely get away with it. I've definitely been really passive aggressive to American tourists and have them not notice. You're right. Yeah. As a whole nation. Or they did get it and I just luckily survived it. It's the great thing about American tourists. They don't have guns when they're here. That, for example. Yeah. But also, like, Americans are pretty self-selecting. As long as you don't go to America, the ones that you're going to meet are going to be pretty cool. That's true. That's very true. These are the Americans who have chosen to travel to a different country from that. Therefore, they're probably fine. I ain't never had a problem with any American I've ever met. Fair. I mean, Trump supporters still travel. Oh, do they? Yeah, they sure do. I don't know. All the MAGAs that I've met have been local. That's fair. wish I could say that I did not know people who have voted for Donald Trump, but I do. Well, millions did. But, like, fewer millions? Sure, but, like, he got the second most votes. (laughs) Out of both people running? Out of anyone who had ever run for president. That's how population increase works. 
Like, we're not even going at this from a policy standpoint. As someone who ran for president professionally, he did okay. You know what? Yeah. He did pretty good. <sighs> it's funny because a bunch of dudes were real, real mad that they put women in a Ghostbusters movie and now we're all going to die. <laughs> <laughs> that movie was good. I don't care what anybody says. Was it? I liked it. I'm going to be honest. I didn't watch it. But I don't think we should have blown up the whole world because it exists. <laughs> I've heard people whose opinions I totally respect say that that movie's not funny, and I think that they are objectively wrong. It is very funny. It has a funny cast. Kate McKinnon could do anything. She's so funny. And they got a solid template to start with. It, like, it definitely wasn't worse than the original <laughs> Ghostbusters movie. Ooh, bold. I've been firing blind and saying that it wasn't worse than part two. It's definitely not worse than part <laughs> People two. People come up, what do you think of the new Ghostbusters movie? I don't know, I thought it was better than part two. Oh, have you seen it? No. Part two was hot garbage. <laughs> but like, the first one... Literally, if Bill Murray doesn't punch me in the back of the head halfway through the movie, I'll probably like it better than I liked part two. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, Bill Murray liked it, so I feel completely justified in my choice to like it. Yeah, you're allowed to like things. Also that. Like, also that. Life is too short. You're allowed to like things. You're allowed to not like things. You're I was, allowed to not care one way or the other about things. I actually usually have to defend my opinion about movies with the caveat that I like to like things because I thoroughly enjoy most DC movies. That's a bold stance. I know. I said most. I won't have any. I know that you're not going to say I like all of them but Wonder Woman, but I am <laughs> low-key hoping that this is followed with I liked all of them but Wonder Woman. <laughs> Could you imagine? If somebody listened to me go on and on about how much I love this album, and then I said I loved every DC movie except for Wonder Woman, they'd be like, I don't need to listen to this album. <laughs> no. Wonder Woman is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. I had a religious experience. I cried. I saw it three times in theaters. I own it on Blu-ray. I thought that was the greatest thing ever. I won't have anything to do with Suicide Squad. I'll watch Suicide Squad Part 2, but also I hated Suicide Squad. I know that that is a small overlap in a Venn diagram, but I thought that they cast Deadshot well, and I thought that they cast Amanda Waller well, and I thought that but like, Will Smith and Viola Davis did good jobs, and I'm aware that based on the premise of the movie, they can fire literally everyone else, keep those two, and then port them into a new movie and put the name Suicide Squad on it. And I'm hoping they do. Here's the thing. They're not going to. Because the people over at DC, Jeff Jones, I'm talking about you, motherfucker, seem to think that Harley and Joker were the good parts of that movie. I haven't watched it. I won't have anything to do with it because I am inclined to disagree with that statement because they did everything about Harley and Joker wrong. But we're getting so far off topic. We do that here. We do that here. And yeah, you're not missing great no. cinema. No, I'm not. By uh, missing out on Suicide Squad. But I Squad. did enjoy the Justice League movie quite a bit. Yeah? I thought it was super fun. I had fallen off the train by that point. I will watch Jason Momoa do literally anything. So I will watch the fuck out of Aquaman. Oh yeah, no, I'll be watching Aquaman. Jason Momoa is muscular. Also, I'm the only person who feels this way, but Ezra Levant's take on The Flash uh, was so delightful. Surely not. No, absolutely. Ezra Levant? 
Not Ezra's wife. Sorry, Ezra Miller. Ezra <laughs> okay. Miller. I talk I, about politics so much. I, I was sitting here going, okay, I don't know who the fuck played the Flash in that movie. But, it wasn't but I know who didn't. It was Ezra Miller. Sorry. Ezra Miller's Flash is some of the most unique adaptation that I could have ever not expected. He's got a little bit of a, like, um, autistic kind of streak to him. He gets really frustrated with how slow everyone else talks um, and stuff like that. And so I really, um, I like that aspect where him being quick, it's not just a physical thing. Like, he's mentally quick as well. It's a fun take to take on super speed characters. Mm -hmm. I saw that in an issue of Peter David's X Factor run in the 90s. They brought in a psychiatrist to talk to the team after the team underwent superhero tragedy number 800 <laughs> but one of the things was quicksilver talking really frankly about how that feeling that you get when the person in front of you in line at a grocery store cannot find her goddamn wallet to write this check to write a check and how he felt that way about everyone he met literally all of the time and that's why the character's a low-key dick to everyone he meets brilliant uh, Ezra Miller's Flash wasn't mean to everybody. He just did express frustration with how slowly everyone else talks. That's fun. Also, Ezra Miller's just so cute. Aww. Yeah. So you like him better than TV Flash? I do, quite a bit. I think TV Flash is boring. I liked TV Flash very much for two years. A number of my friends who do comic book TV podcasting got to watch me sour on TV Flash over the course of this year in real time as I went from I'm excited for a new season of Flash to uh, eventually dumping Flash via text, going to a nightclub, eating a bunch of Molly, and then blocking them on Instagram. Sounds like a wonderful night. Fuck Flash. <laughs> but fuck Flash. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I think that whole series, I want to like it so bad and they keep doing crossover events, but the only one that I would, like, give my commitment to was Supergirl, and then they keep doing crossover events, and then they've recently announced that Batwoman's gonna be a thing, but she's yes. gonna start in a crossover event, and I was like, fuck! Like, just give me one show! I don't want to watch the entire CW lineup, whatever that garbage with Hawkeye and Hawkgirl in it, briefly, not even still, I can't do it. I can't watch that. Yeah. That's what um, Black Lightning was for when they started Black Lightning. Uh, oh, yeah. Black Lightning was so good. We're going to not tie him to the rest of her universe for yeah. the whole first year. That was you nice. can watch an entire year worth of Black Lightning and never have to worry about any of these other shows, you guys. Don't even worry about it. Oh, man. He was like Luke Cage family, man. He was so great. And mm -hmm. his costume definitely made him look like a member of Parliament Funkadelic. And, oh! Like, that okay. was the best costume. Okay, not gonna talk about Black Lightning right now, but man, that show got awesome. Yes! It went in the exact direction I wanted it to. Right? Yeah. That's that's all you get. If you haven't watched Black Lightning, watch Black Lightning. You it should... goes in the exact direction that you want it to go. You should watch Black Lightning. And I liked Legends of Tomorrow. I don't even care. I couldn't do it. It was hot garbage. You don't have to. Thanks. Watching every show is optional. That's the great thing about shows and bands. You don't have to like everything. Which brings us to the end of the show. I'm going to answer three questions because I asked three questions. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'm going to listen to this again. Sweet. This is real, real good. I'm going to go on a mid-2000s binge and this will now be in Wait. the soundtrack for that the next time it happens. It's something that I do at least once a year. I have already listened to the rest of their catalog. 
the rest of their entire catalog? Yeah, absolutely. Say? You assigned this to me like a year ago. Okay, It took point. forever to get you to actually come in. Yeah. So I've already listened to all of the metric. I think that you're right that they go in a more synthetic commercial direction after this, although it was less deal-breaky for me than it apparently was for you because I wasn't as invested in them in the first place. Fair. So I didn't have to feel betrayed. It was just a band whose record I kind of liked going in a different direction. That seems fine. Yeah. And as far as ending the episode, we're going to be ending on Soft Rockstar this time around. So this has been the Soundtrack to a Life. I've been Chris. Follow along on Facebook and Twitter at SoundtrackCast. SoundtrackCast.com. Like us, share us, rate us, review us, etc., etc., etc. Sarah, do you want to push some stuff? Yeah, check out uh, a YouTube show I'm on called Casual Libationist. I have similarly strong opinions about beer. I'll put a link in the show notes. This has been fun. Do you want to come back and do it again? Yeah, probably. Love it. This has been the Soundtrack to a Life. You guys, we will see you in two weeks for somebody else talking about something else. I don't order these while I'm recording them, so I'm not sure who or what. (laughs) Bye. (laughs) 